Let's read a few verses, and, and then we're going to get Old Testament, okay? So that's kind of the plan here. We're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to go to Leviticus, cool? You didn't expect Leviticus for a Christmas message, but that's what's going to happen this morning. Again, Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child... His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Eight days were completed. So at the close of verse 20 and the opening of verse 21, we have eight days of silence. Uh, No record, no accounting, eight days. So think about that for a moment. We left Mary and Joseph in a cave, a stable, unsanitary, gross, disgusting, best provisions though they could find under the circumstances. Not only was the population of Bethlehem swollen because of the census that everyone had to be registered and their hometown, which is what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to begin with. Yes, the population had increased, swelled naturally, but there was this stigma Again, there was no room for them in the inn. Literally, the word can be translated the guest room. They had family. This was their family, Bethlehem. This is where their kinfolk lived, and yet Mary and Joseph were not welcomed. Again, the stigma around this pregnancy. Before they were married, before they had consummated the relationship, during the betrothal period, Mary is with child. We know the story. We know the explanation. Joseph, again, has to be convinced by a dream himself that Mary is telling the truth. But how many people doubted? It is a crazy story. To some degree, it's outlandish. Apart from divine angelic intervention, you can sympathize with a little bit of the skepticism. Mary, though, knows in her heart. Confirmed by Elizabeth, her cousin, she knows. And they go to Bethlehem and they're shunned. They've been gossiped about. People have accused Mary of being a harlot, being a whore. People can't understand why Joseph would still marry such a gal. Some guilt complex, at the least. So they leave Nazareth. They find themselves in Bethlehem. No place to stay. Mary is very pregnant. They find at least shelter in a stable. And Jesus is born. And this same night, an amazing thing happens. Not only there, Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, Mary in recovery, Joseph trying to get provisions. But in the middle of all of the chaos, and we don't know what time of the day or the evening, we don't know a lot of the, 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 the timing of it, but they get visitors. The first visitors to the stable the night Jesus is born is a group of rowdy, Roughneck shepherds. I mean, these men were so distrusted, had such a stigma about their personal character that they were forbidden from testifying in a court of law. That's how untrustworthy shepherds were. And yet, the angel appears and makes this incredible pronouncement of truth. There is born to you this day in the city of Bethlehem a Savior, your Savior who it's Christ the Lord. And then this invitation, go and see, look. 
the sign, a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they go and they show up and they see Jesus. What an amazing thing. And then we're told that they leave the stable, they go into Bethlehem, and they tell everyone that would listen the great thing that God had just revealed to them. People are scratching their heads thinking, this is peculiar. And then the night quiets. At some point, Mary finally gets some sleep. Jesus, we don't know if he sleeps through the night. Joseph probably didn't sleep a wink, thinking we can't stay here very long. I mean, think about that for a moment. Like, we, we, will, we will get the indication when the wise men show up, okay, they're not in the stable, they're in a house. But we're not given any of the, 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 the details or the descriptions, the process by which Mary and Joseph go from being so broke that they're in a stable, alienated, ostracized, to then finding a home. Like, we just don't, we're only, it's only left to our imagination what those eight days were like. Trying to find some place more adequate to stay, to hunker down. Now, they went to Bethlehem because of the census, which would have accounted to a couple hours at the DMV for them to take care of what was necessary. They got their ticket, they stayed in line, they registered, and then they could have left easily and gone back to Nazareth, but they don't. They hang around because there's some things that the law stipulated about women purification about children, circumcision, especially male child, that they, they hung around for. Eight days, and the child is circumcised, Jesus. And it's at this point that he is given the name that the angel had determined, not just to, to Mary, his name will be Jesus, but also reiterated to the stepdad, Joseph. It was his responsibility to name the child, Jesus, Yahshua, Joshua, as probably better translated into English, it was a very common name, but it meant Jehovah is salvation. Oh, what an appropriate name. Again, we know that the babe, his identity is Emmanuel, God with us, this Old Testament reference. Jesus being the application of, of what, he would, what he would do. He would save his people from their sins. And so Mary and Joseph, we don't know where they stay. We don't know where they lodge. We don't know where that, what they ate. Again, these are two teenagers that are just kind of scrapping for existence. The population maybe left Bethlehem, maybe some rooms opened up. We don't know. But for seven days to the eighth, they are mulling around Bethlehem for circumcision. And at the eighth day, they name him Jesus. Now, there's a tradition. Again, it's never specified in the law in particular that, that you had to name a child on the eighth day. But it became customary going all the way back to Genesis chapter 17 when circumcision was instituted, where God came and gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant that he was making with Abram, that on the same day that they were circumcised, God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And so because Abraham, Abram to Abraham, his name was changed on the day of circumcision, even though he was quite an old man, it became customary in Hebrew culture that on the eighth day when circumcision would occur, that the name of the child would be given. Circumcision. It's such an, a weird detail for Luke to include, isn't it? Of all of the things that he could tell us, he mentions circumcision. 
I want you to flip quite a few pages to your left to the book of Leviticus, specifically Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus 12, I'm gonna gonna read a few verses here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Now this is at Sinai. This is the giving of the law. The children of Israel have left Egypt. We're 40 some odd days after the parting of the Red Sea. God is taking this group of slaves and he's organizing them into his people. He's taking this ragtag group and he's, and he's, he's codifying them. You're my people, I'm your God, this is how we're gonna do life. And so Leviticus gives us all kinds of details, all kinds of the, spe- the specifics of how things culturally were to operate in, his, in his, his people. Tabernacle in the middle, they were organized around. A lot of order, a lot of organization. Everything's particular. In the middle of this, though, we get the Lord speaking to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, verse 2, saying, if a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. And in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin, speaking of the child, shall be circumcised. She shall then continue and the blood of her purification, 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, no circumcision, and in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. So it's a much longer period of time. And when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring... To the priest, a lamb for the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. Uh, That'll be applicable to Mary and Joseph. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Following birth, there was a a period of of what was called purification, where the woman's unclean. Again, a designation given by God that the woman is unclean. Ceremonially, she's unclean. On the eighth day, she was to take her son to be circumcised. The full totality of her days of purification or her days of uncleanness, again, relevant to Jesus and and the male, would be 40 days. So for 40 days, the woman following childbirth, and this is applicable to Mary, she's determined to be unclean. Now, that's not a designation that should bring about some type of condemnation. In fact, there's, there's a subtle brilliance and beauty all throughout Leviticus. God, God like he designates all kinds of things clean and unclean and like he's making it clear to his people that there there are things permissible and not permissible cleanness and uncleanness it wasn't a stigma it, it was just a classification and there's a brilliance to what God is doing here actually somewhat re- revolutionary a woman gives birth and God's like she's unclean for 40 days meaning what she can't do anything for 40 days Guess whose job it now is to take care of the house and to do the cooking 
and to do the cleaning. Again, she's unclean, meaning everything she touches then is unclean and would have to be purified. So God is saying, hey, bro, for 40 days, she can't do anything except for love on that baby and nurse that baby and connect with that baby. And if it's a, if it's a female baby, she gets 80 days. Like it gets doubled, extended out. Don't know why. Some psychological things going on with women and daughters. I can testify. They just need more time to bond, I guess. Boys, it's quick. Girls, it takes 20 years. But there's this, this designation. So she can't work. She can't cook. She can't make food. The fella has to step up. She is given time to rest, to recover, to bond, to nurture. Interesting. Obviously, she's given a moment to reflect. Again, there's an uncleanness to what has happened. And we know that that ties in, and, and that, again, the particulars of this emphasize a great truth. That for the woman, the curse, the wages of sin, in addition to being death, was what? The curse for the man was that his work would be labor. For the woman, her, her children would be labor. Literally, labor. And so this whole thing, the whole act of, of birthing a child was to emphasize, yes, to the woman, but to everybody, man, sin is, is ugly. And sin is dangerous. I mean, the mortality rates of women in pregnancies during this time of, of the world, I mean, we've gotten real good at it now. I, I read historically like one in five women would never survive child, childbearing. I mean, it was, it was an incredible thing. And there was literally a risk to it. And it was an emphasis of sin. So the woman's given time. And again, Mary. So Mary's had, had she's unclean. Yes, it's the Savior. But she's chilling. She's got 40 days. And Joseph has to up his game. And he has to do his thing. Now, in the middle of this, this passage, there is something very radical about it. And that is this one verse in the middle of the, the woman's purification ordeal where we're given an just a simple verse. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin should be circumcised. Now, if you know anything of the Old Testament or Jewish people and like the whole covenant, you know like of the things that were like a big deal. Circumcision, man, was like at the top of the list. In fact, like the great schism that would take place in the early church, when, when what began kind of as, as, as a Jewish thing, Jesus a Jew, the disciples being Jewish, the early followers being Jewish, the early church being Jewish in Jerusalem, but as over the, the first 20 years, as it became more and more Gentiled, the big issue came back to circumcision. Like you read Galatians and even into Romans, I mean, Paul is constantly, they have to have a Jerusalem council in Acts 15 to deal with the topic. Like circumcision, is this, is this still a thing? Is, I mean, it's a big deal in the Old Testament. God comes to Abraham, like we have this covenant, this sign. You're gonna, the foreskin, the flesh. And this is the sign of the covenant, every one of, every descendant. And so Abraham, an old man, circumcises himself and he turns, yeah, terrible. And then he turns around to, to his entourage, he's like, yo, guys, guess what? Got this cool thing with God going on. This promise he's given, we're going to have this sign. It's going to make us unique. We're going to be his people. You'll never believe what it is. You know that, that weird flap of skin? He wants us to cut it off. 
You guys game? I mean, they really trusted Abraham. And like every child, it was, it was, it was the removing of the flesh, emphasizing faith in a promise. Again, circumcision would become this very weird thing later on, where it becomes a work that made you part of the family of God. It was never designed to be that. It was a demonstration that the flesh played no role in salvation. But it would be a gift through the seed that God would do a work. There was no confidence in the flesh. It was our faith and a promise that God would do a work. Now, you would think that with circumcision being such a big deal, right? I don't know if I've emphasized that enough. It's a big deal. Old Testament, New Testament, you would think that you would have copious amounts of documentation in the law about circumcision. Do you know the only place circumcision is mentioned at all in the law? That one verse. That's it. Only place. It's the only place, which is really interesting because circumcision, again, had nothing to do with the law. It predated the law. It was about faith. So in the midst of the woman and her days of purification, you have this interesting instruction. It all's tethered together, whereby the woman would take her son, and her son would be circumcised. And it would be this demonstration of what? Not confidence in the flesh, but of God's provisions in place of the flesh, that God would do a work. And so you're Mary, and you got to keep it in the context of Mary. That's what we're looking at. She's like, Joseph, we can't go back to Bethlehem. Well, but Mary, we, I mean, we don't have a, we can't go back to Nazareth. We got to stay. We, we don't have a place to stay. She's like, no, we've got to stay. Like there's things that have to happen. They're important. They're significant. And Mary takes Jesus to be circumcised. Now, yes, he identifies as the seed of Abraham, etc. There's some cultural things that are relevant to that. But this is about who making a declaration. She's to take the son and, and have him circumcised because she's making a declaration of what? Of faith and confidence and God's work. And so she goes. Now, where does she go? Uh, for whatever reason, I've always thought that that happened at the temple. There's really no documentation to substantiate that. Uh, we don't know. Uh, if, was there a local rabbi that was, you know, had snip snip across his, his, his banner, you know, had a banner over his door? Like, this is the guy you go to when this is the time? I, I, I'm not sure. It is interesting. You can study this on your own. The, the, the beauty and the wisdom of the eighth day making the cut. Because if it was on the seventh day, a child hasn't, hasn't developed the type of, of blood coagulants, he would bleed out, he'd die. The eighth day, vitamin K, there's a whole b b bunch of science. There's a beauty to the eighth day that we didn't actually discover until like the 1900s, but God was doing this the 4,000 years beforehand. It's like he knows what he's doing, shocker. So you're Mary. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. Salvation. Again, wh why would Luke include this? Man, he's probably getting, just as a side note, so Luke was a historian, and he worked for a man by the name of Theophilus, um, who happened to be the, 
the ugliest person in Scripture. He was the awfulest looking man. I mean, that was, that was low-hanging fruit. That was just an easy one, guys. Come on. But he worked for Theophilus, and he worked at putting an account of the life of Jesus and then the development of the early church. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke gets his account largely through eyewitness testimony. And at the time, most of the account that, that we're given here would have probably come directly from the mouth of Mary herself. I mean, all of the details given, Joseph is off the scene. Joseph dies at some point after Jesus' 12th birthday. Um, at least historically, that's believed to be the case. Because Jesus is the carpenter from Nazareth and not Joseph when he comes onto the scene. Mary, though, is there. She's an early believer. She's part of the early church. She's likely giving us all of the details, the accounts of, of what we're given. And, and in the midst of all of this, she tells Luke, hey, you gotta, I think it was in her, like, her, her scrapbook when she had Jesus circumcised. And when she had this declaration of faith and the promise, and when she named him Joseph, not Joseph and Mary named him Jesus. Now, in the days of her purification, verse 22, according to the law of Moses was completed. So the, the, the full 40 days now. Now, where are they staying? We don't know. We don't know where they're staying, but they're hanging out. Joseph, no doubt working. He's got to provide. When the days of her purification were completed, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Again, I told you we'd be in the Old Testament a little bit. Flip to Exodus 13. I'll read a few verses here. Verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it's mine. Consecrate the firstborn. And then you jump down to verse 11. And it shall be that when the Lord brings you into the land of, Can of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. That's great for the donkey. And all of the firstborn of, of man among your sons you shall redeem, so it shall be. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him by the strength of the hand of the Lord, bringing us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This act, what, what happens at the end of her purification, circumcision has already taken place. There's not like this specified procedure. Again, this is kind of an obscure instruction in the law early, Exodus 13. But Mary is taking all of this very serious. The days of her purification are complete. Jesus being the firstborn of just not just man, right? Of not just herself. 
She's going to consecrate to present Jesus. She's going to, to take care of the, the, the sacrifices she needs to make, but she's also presenting Jesus to the Lord. An amazing faith. She brings him to present, as it is written in the law, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of, of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Pigeons. So she goes to the temple. Joseph is with her. She's got Jesus. They're going to consecrate him according to Exodus 13. She has to make a sacrifice for herself according to Leviticus 12. And the sacrifice stipulated was a lamb as the sin offering or as the burnt offering, and then the birds as, as, the, sin off, uh, as the sin offering, burnt offering, sin offering. There's five of them. It gets confusing. So she's being obedient to the law of the Lord, and she goes, but the stipulation, if you couldn't afford a lamb, is that you could just do the turtle doves. You could just do the pigeons, the birds, both as the burnt and sin offering. And we see that. This is why when, when you hear people talk about their poverty, this is the evidence of their poverty. They couldn't afford a lamb. And so they take advantage of the stipulation to just offer a pair of turtle doves. The temple at this point is pretty much a racket. The reputation of Jerusalem, again, we kind of glorify it. It was, it was a dumpster fire. It was known for thievery. It was known for homelessness and dirtiness. Um, it was hard to keep the temple at this, at this point in history um, adequately staffed. Rome had built the fortress of Antonio. Herod, who was an Edomite, was the one that 40 years prior to this had started the, the rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple became one of the seven wonders of the world. It is still at that, this point under construction. So Jerusalem is chaotic, it's busy. You've got uh, the Sanhedrin, which is just this corrupt ruling body of, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, jockeying for power and position, whatever scraps one, Rome would leave. Rome has a heavy presence there because Jerusalem is the capital, the predominant place in the city. You've got cranes and construction happening. You've got all this rigmarole, all this stuff going on, front end loaders going by, dump trucks, lots of dust. I mean, it's a mess. And in the middle of this scene, you've got, you've got this little, this teenage couple with a, with, a, with a baby coming to be obedient to God, and they're making their way through the construction zone to come into probably out through the, the court of the Gentiles, and they've got, they've got to buy the appropriate things to make the appropriate offerings, and there's probably a line of people, and they're like everyone else. Like there's nothing, to, Mary doesn't have a halo, Jesus isn't glowing in the dark, um, there's nothing, um, and again, wrapped in swaddling clothes, just pieces of cloth. It's not like Jesus has a gold diaper that indicates he's the Messiah. Nobody knows. I mean, they just, they're just normal people, poor, blue-collar people. No idea what they're doing. They've never done this before. They've been to the temple, likely. Mary, more than likely, her first time. They're going to make these appropriate offerings. They're going to make these sacrifices. They're in the appropriate lines. They're working their way through. They're again just being faithful to the Lord. And behold, that, that's the lead up. In the middle of all this, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon means listener. 
That's what the word means. Faith comes by hearing, listening, and hearing by the word of God. There was a man named Simeon. And this man was just, and he was devout. Which tells us a bit about the man. He's just, which speaks of his horizontal relationships with other men. He was a just man. He was a fair man. He was a noble man of character. He had a good reputation. He treated people fairly. And again, this is a culture, this is a community in Jerusalem that is cutthroat. It's backbiting. Everyone's jockeying for position. Greed has taken hold of a religious process. But in the middle of it all, there's a man. And Luke says, behold, and like, this is kind of a surprising thing, that there's a just man in Jerusalem. And not just just, but we're told that he's devout. If the word just spoke of his horizontal relationships with man, this word, this Greek word devout spoke of, of, of the vertical relationship he had with God. It's a combination of three Greek words, specifically being translated to take hold of well. He's a devout man, which means he's taken hold of his relationship with God well. Again, may that be said of all of us, that we're devout. Not in a pious sense that we're doing it to earn chips in heaven, but we've taken hold of all this thing that God has given us that Jesus died to provide us. We've, we've, we've grabbed hold of it well. This is a good man. And then we're given this interesting detail that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, that, again, th that's an interesting description. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel or the comforter of Israel. This could be a 15-minute explanation, but the cliff notes is that this is, he is expecting, he's waiting, he's longing for the Messiah. Again, this man knows the scriptures. He knows the Old Testament prophecies. He knows that, that, that things have been silent for 400 years, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the Messiah. We're told in verse 26 that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. How that happened, I have no idea. Again, worth noting, here's a man in the New Testament before Pentecost who has the Holy Spirit upon him. And, and the, the, the the tenses being presented is that this was a continual thing that he oozed the Holy Spirit. Again, coming off of our series through Judges, you should note how odd that is in an Old Testament context. And then we find in this instance, there's this guy in Jerusalem. We don't know if he's a priest or not. It's likely he was. He's a good dude. He loves God. In the midst of a culture that is just completely misrepresented religion, has made it a racket in a scheme where people are like, I don't know if I want anything to do with, with a God like that. You've got this man living a true life, a holy life, and he's filled with the Spirit. And at some point, somehow, God had revealed to him that you will see the Messiah before you die. Again, church history can fill in a lot of details, but it makes it very sketchy. Some scholars will point to this man as being at this point roughly 
113 years old. We don't know that for sure. We're not really provided his age, other than the fact that he has lived his life just, devout, and expectant. He's longing to see the Messiah. And God told him he would. Now, now I love this. He's, he's, he's just, he's devout, he's expectant. But does he sit on his rear end? Now, every day he's going to the temple. Why? Well, because the law, he knows this will be the seed of the woman. A sign will be given. The virgin will conceive. He knows some parameters. He's got some details. He's like, a good place for me to encounter the Messiah will be at church. By the way, that's a good place to encounter Jesus. If you've been looking for him, you'll, you'll run into people like, I've been looking for Jesus. I want to encounter Jesus. I've been praying that Jesus would reveal himself to me. Well, do you go to church? No. Well, you're missing him. That's where he is. He likes to hang out where two or more are gathered. He's in our midst. If you want to encounter Jesus, great place to go, church. This is, what the, this is what Simeon does. He's going, he's expecting, he's waiting. It had been revealed to him. And so he came, verse 27, by the Spirit into the temple. What, what was that like? The same route that he takes from his little apartment in the old city through the quarters up into the temple. Something's different about this morning. The Spirit has impressed, he's got a sense. He's looking. He's making his way into the temple. Now, there's Mary and Joseph. Again, they're in the crowd. Nothing special, nothing unique, no weird identifier. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, did he see him across the way? How did he know? As the still small voice of the spirit, I would assume. And you can see this old man just beelining it. Now, if you're Mary and Joseph, what comes next probably is a little alarming because we read, and he took him up in his arms. He took the baby from Mary. <laughs> I don't know a lot of new moms at the 40th day that are like cool with old guys snatching babies from arms. But this guy, even old guys, right? Remember when, when, when Mabel was born, my grandfather was pretty advanced. You know, at that point, you know, he wants to hold the baby. And it's like, you need to sit down first, <laughs> you know. Let's get some cushions on the sides. Basically, we're going to let the couch hold the baby and you can kind of sit there. We kind of had, like, Big O had to hold Mabel the same way Quincy did. You know, like, we're not trusting you with the baby. Simeon grabs the baby. Takes him in his arms. And he blesses God. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I, I, I'm curious, did he go home and just die? Like, <laughs> I've been waiting to die for years. His first thank you is, God, thank you, I could die now. <laughs> Let me depart in peace according to your word. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. What a moment for Mary and Joseph, right? To have just another confirmation. And they get this blessing over their son. 
from a good man, a devout man, a spirit-filled man. Of all the things that have been revealed to Mary and Joseph, there is a new detail about their son. And that is verse 32, that he would be a revelation to the Gentiles. Again, from context, Mary and Joseph know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. They're Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. Of his reign, there would be no end, a throne of peace. But the idea, the concept here of him also not just being the savior of the Jews, but of all of the world. This is, wow, how that must have have gripped Mary's mind, her heart, already a contemplative woman. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things that were spoken of Jesus. That, That literally they're in wonder. And then Simeon blesses them. He pronounces a blessing upon them. He knows who the kid is. He knows their job as parents. He's like, y'all, y'all are raising God's kid. You know, you need a blessing. And then he says to Mary, Jesus' mother, he says, behold, this child, and again, this is an old man, Simeon, speaking to a teenager, okay? Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. A sword will pierce your heart. You know, Mary was there When Jesus hung on a tree, she was there when he was scourged. She was there when his brow had pressed a crown of thorns. She watched as he was mocked and ridiculed and spat upon. A mother. There were other people there, but Jesus had only one mother. Half of his flesh came from Mary. Half of his genetics came from Mary. The only human that Jesus bore physical features after is Mary. That Mary could see in the face of Jesus as he bled and died, she could see her own eyes. Or maybe that wrinkle in her nose totally unique from any other person. Again, blessed. But Simeon, this man, this glorious moment, this blessing, the confirmation, he looks at her and he says, this is going to hurt, hon. This is going to pierce your own soul. The the sword here, this is the the big sword, the six-foot sword the one that had the sheave down the back, only that the strong could wield. The Conan sword would pierce Mary. I love the, the, the way he concludes this. He says that Jesus, that the thoughts, that through Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The thoughts of many hearts What a weird turn of phrase, isn't it? The thoughts of the heart 
Like, what is he saying about that? Does the heart think? Not necessarily. The, the heart, again, from a literary kind of analogy point of view, is the seat of desire. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. It's the, the seat of longing. You go after what your heart desires, what it longs for. But the thought, Jesus is the revealer of what people really long for. The presence of Jesus. It's true, you can see it. How people deal with Jesus reveals a lot about who they are. About what their desires truly are. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess. So as all of this is going on with Simeon, Mary and Joseph, the baby, they're in the temple. There was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age. It's a really nice way of saying she's old. And she had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. Now, we're not given any biographical information about Simeon. But we're given quite a bit of information here about this other, uh, this other lady, this other uh, character in our story, Anna. She's, she's a prophetess. She's the daughter of Penuel. She's of the tribe of Asher. The women of Asher were known uh, to be the most beautiful of Israel. In fact, the daughters of Asher were typically designated to be the wives of the priests as well as kings. So she was probably a very beautiful woman. She was of great age. She had been married. She had lived with a husband for seven years from her virginity. But now the woman was a widow of about 84 years. Now, if you run the math, so seven years she's married, but she's been a widow for 84 years. And let's say she gets married at 14 or 15 years old. She's, we can say from the text, of great age, about 106. This old woman who has been a widow for 84 years, but we're told that she did not depart from the temple, but she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So she encounters Jesus too here. And then she lets everybody know about it. I love this woman. Anna, the, the word Anna, Joanna, Hannah, John, all kind of derived from the same word. It means grace. Her story. She's from the tribe of Asher. She likely marries a priest. That's why she finds herself in Jerusalem. And she's married for seven years, but we're told that she doesn't have any kids. We, and her husband dies. We don't know how or why or what was the parameters behind that. But this is a tragedy. Seven years being married, no children, husband dies. She's in a bad spot. She's got to live off the system as a widow. And again, there were stipulations in the law of taking care of widows and orphans. It was a thing. There was a safety net. But this woman, experiencing a tragic loss, brutal, heartbreaking. What does she do? I'll tell you what she doesn't do. 
She's not bitter at God. And instead, she dedicates her life to serving at the temple day and night. The, the, the way that this phrase, that she did not depart from the temple, meant she did not depart from the temple. <laughs> like it became her life. She served. She's not a priest. She's a prophetess. She's got wisdom, integrity. But she serves God. And it's in the course of serving God that she's 106 years old. I don't know. Did she have conversations with Simeon? Did Simeon give the signal, you know? It had to have been a signal. She can't hear at this point. She's 106. Probably jumping up and down, waving. But she encounters Jesus here. You know, bitterness. This woman could have been bitter. She had been married. Her husband died. She was left alone. Bitterness, a great definition or at least explanation for bitterness. The bitterness often manifests from an unfulfilled expectation that's often not an appropriate expectation. People get bitter with God because they expect God to do A, and then when B happens, or C, D, E, or F, they're upset. Again, I had this expectation for the life that I was supposed to have, that God was supposed to give me. God has now failed in that expectation, and because he's failed in what I expected him to be doing, I'm now bitter about it. I'm kind of bent. I'm upset. The problem with the entire notion, although it explains why bitterness happens, and if you deal with bitterness right now, you're suffering with the loss of something. Again, it's rooted in like you expected God to do A, he didn't. And you're struggling with that. You're grappling with that. The problem with it entirely is that you're approaching God in a way that you really shouldn't. In fact, it's dangerous. Let me phrase it this way. Do you really want your relationship with God to be based upon what you deserve. I mean, is that, is, that, is that how you're wanting to interact with God? On the basis of what I deserve and what I don't deserve. Because guess what you deserve? What your expectation should be. Hell. Punishment. Judgment. Wrath. I don't know if you know you. That's what you deserve. So if you're like, God, I want what I deserve, do you? Really? And then if God fails in your expectation, can you blame God or should you maybe reevaluate your expectation? Because the reality of things is that when I approach life from grace, where everything I have, I deserve none of it, that God bestows all of the things I don't deserve, not because I, it's just he's that good, then if there's some aspect of my life that doesn't exactly play out the way that I thought it should have, I don't blame God and I don't find myself bitter because I don't deserve any of it. It's just all God's grace and it's all God's goodness and this woman loses her husband seven years. She had saved herself. She was a virgin seven years, excited. And then he gets taken away. And she could have been very angry at God. 
But she wasn't, was she? The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And she dedicates her life and she serves. If you can, friend, find a way to set aside your bitterness and to find yourself in God's love. And and sometimes the easiest way to do that is just to get your eyes off yourself entirely, which is, I think, a key that Anna illustrates. She went and served. Well, the life I thought I was going to have didn't play out. So, Lord, it's yours. And she focused on others, bringing others joy, serving others, ministering to others. If you can do that, if you can get beyond that bitterness, Lord, I I repent. I should expect nothing. Everything you give is a gift that I don't deserve. And if you can get through that, here's what Anna illustrates, and it's a promise. I promise you. On the other side of that, you will encounter Jesus because he's that loving and he's that good. And this is a part of the Christmas story that gets left out of the Christmas story. You don't see a whole lot of nativity scenes with Simeon and Anna, regrettably. Odd because the wise men are included, but they don't come for another 18 months. But I think these two characters demand our attention, demand an inclusion. Here they are, added into the narrative. A just, devout, expectant man looking for Jesus. The shepherds were invited to go and see, right? Simeon was in a place waiting, and Jesus came to him. I think that's interesting. And then you have this woman, this godly woman, who didn't allow herself to be bitter, but served God and ministered to others, and she encountered as well the consolation of Israel. Two characters in our story, along with the shepherds, that testify as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do, not in just the global sense, but in individuals. Apart from this, you would have never known about Simeon. You would have never known about Anna. No great books, no great sermons, no great songs, no no note whatsoever. And yet they're in the story because of an encounter with Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word.